Smokey the Bear used to say, only you can prevent forest fires. And when I heard that in school, I agreed, in theory. I lived in town. I had never been in the deep woods, not yet. And after, then one summer, a forest fire broke out, a really big one in the eastern part of our county. And from town, we could see the smoke rising over the hills and then the flames. After the fire, to visit my aunt and uncle, we had to drive through some of the burn. When we went further east the next summer, we saw the burn from the train. To a child, it seemed to go on forever. And the next year, we could see signs of new life. People were back in the ditches along the railway tracks and back, and back roads picking blueberries. Blueberries love fire. When they stop giving fruit or slow down, you burn them, they come back, and they come back and bear even more fruit. We see the news from California. We see destruction of properties. We rarely see the burnt vegetation. We see the houses reduced to charred rubble because people go on living in places where fires are natural phenomena, regular and necessary. The loss is greatest when fires burn ahead of nature's schedule. According to Natural Resources Canada, the biodiversity of northern circumpolar boreal forests is largely a fire-induced diversity, sometimes termed pyrodiversity. In simpler terms, the kind of forest that still covers much of Canada needs to die by fire so it can go on living. Indigenous Canadians have always known that. One tree that helps start the resurrection of the forest is the aspen. And I once saw an aspen forest in the fall from above on a flight into Grand Prairie, Alberta. The sight was stunning. Brilliant yellow leaves on spindly silver-white tree trunks and the earth beneath them still fire black. The whole forest was on its way back to fullness of life on nature's schedule, or could we say, in God's time. Today we celebrate God's way of bringing new life to places where all human hope is lost, where no matter how hard humans have tried, life has not begun, and where no seed has been planted yet. It may seem odd to read the story of the Valley of the Dry Bones in Advent. It's usually on the menu at Easter or Pentecost. But today we hear it in a new time and place. And we also hear a story from Luke's Gospel after hearing from Ezekiel. And you know, when you put them together, it's all about God's Spirit and new life. Luke's story actually starts with Elizabeth and Zechariah. They're alone together in old age until God intervenes, a new life is conceived, grows and is born, and a boy named John comes into the world with a mission. Zechariah is struck dumb, literally, by the wonder of it all until his son is born. 
And then there's Mary. Now, we heard her story last Sunday and again today. Last Sunday, we also heard John Donne's magnificent poem, Annunciation. Now, I won't try to trip through all the words again, but John Donne celebrates the paradox. Life begun, continued, and nurtured in Mary's womb. The one conceived is the one who first conceived her. She is her maker's maker, her father's mother. How can this be? And that's just what Mary asks. How can this be? I'm a virgin. The answer, it's all about God's spirit and God's way of creating life where no human seed has yet been planted and where no one expects to find it. Ezekiel has a story that is, well, a little like the aftermath of a forest fire. He looks across the valley. He can only see death. Something like a homeowner or a forester after a fire has been put out. The bones are dried out. No marrow left in them. No joints connected, all sinew gone. Today we can find DNA in old bones and go to the lab and try to reconstruct some kind of life, not in Ezekiel's time. He's with the exiles in Babylon, and they've given up hope of ever going home, of ever being a kingdom of their own again, a nation. Jeremiah writes to them from the old country and says, dig in, get busy, it's going to be a while, but God will bring you home. But Ezekiel is in the thick of it. And to him, it looks like all is lost. He's thinking, why show me this God? Can these bones live? It's like Mary's question. But that's just what God asks him. Can these bones live? You know, O oh God. God calls Ezekiel to preach. To preach words that summon the bones and make them shake and rattle, like aspens quake and shimmer when the wind blows in the sunshine. These bones become bodies. The bodies stand up, but there is no life in them. Now, Ezekiel's sermon, the message is important and necessary, but God's Spirit is the medium. It's all about God's Spirit and God's way of bringing new life to places where all human hope is lost. Places where human eyes can't see any signs of life. We have to imagine to see the signs. Ezekiel preaches because he can imagine God will act. He doesn't yet know what God will do, but he can imagine with God that maybe even a whole host of bones might just become a vast multitude of living, breathing, believing people. Mary's yes, let it be with me according to your word, is a daring act of imagination. Yes, it will be. She agrees with the angel. Nothing will be impossible with God. And though she has no idea exactly what is ahead, pregnancy and childbirth for one thing, let alone what will begin when her son is born. But she can imagine and sing about it. I'll be away from the last days of January to the last week of 
February, I'll be teaching in India. Preachers, lay and ordained, and some theological students. I'll be part of a team of three, the only, the only Westerner. My topics will be the use of analogy and the place of imagination in preaching. In India, Christians are in the minority in most places. They're often outcasts, many persecuted, others isolated. 2.7% of the population doesn't add up to much, even in a country as populous as India. My first stop will be in Tamil Nadu state, just over 6% Christian. But the place where they say the Apostle Thomas founded the church about 20 years after Jesus lived. Christians there are mostly lower caste people. Many are Dalit, non-caste people. In fact, there's even prejudice against Dalits in the church. We'll start in the city of Madurai, 3% Christian. The city's built around one of the largest Hindu temples in the world. And there's a thriving Christian seminary there. Bangalore is next, where open persecution of Christians and the suppression of church meetings are on the rise. And last stop is the India Westerners rarely see up in the far northeast, cut off from the rest of India by Bangladesh, Nagaland. In Nagaland, Christianity is the official religion. 90% of the population are Christian. But Nagaland isn't immune to sectarian violence. After years of Marxist incursions across their borders, and insurrections from within. So how do Indian Christians imagine? Imagine God present among them, God doing something in, with, and through them. What's their hope? We already know how hard it is, even dangerous, to imagine when you have to put so much effort into keeping the faith, staying alive. We know because we read the Bible because we hear the prophets calling in Advent. I got the impression the first time I was in India that the best many Christians hope for, the most they can imagine, is a national government that will uphold the Constitution, which is based on religious freedom and tolerance. They dream that the anti-Christian laws passed in some states will be struck down. Can the Spirit come and heal and fill imagination. Can preaching to struggling, faithful people sustain their living and renew their hope and even start something new? I can't wait to find out. But what about us? What about us? We at least have a chance today to get caught up in the season and imagine a better world believe the world can be a better place for us and for all. Now, this is where preachers already tired of Advent and preparations for Christmas, or maybe overexcited by Advent and preparations for Christians, often berate their congregations, as if you'll all become dry bones again on December 26th. And I confess, in my younger days, I did that, complaining about the flurry of goodwill that will melt away after Christmas, and the overflow of charity that slows to a trickle in January. But that's not Glenview. Sure, our generosity, our sharing, 
is energized in Advent, but the generosity and the steady support for mission and charity, the willingness to respond to emergency appeals lasts all year. I got a letter last week from Yorkminster Park Meals on Wheels thanking Glenview for 47 years of partnership, 47 years of service. Wow. And that's just one example. There was also a reminder of increasing need and rising costs. The work has to go on, and all of our partners in mission can say that and must say that. And I know some days we, we feel like dry bones, worn out, discouraged, we can't see any signs of new life, return for our efforts, and we need encouragement along the way. Of course we do. We need to be renewed in the Spirit's power. And can we imagine, not a recreation of the past, but something new, renewed, and responsive to today's needs? Building on strength to dare to do even more. Can we Imagine. How can this be, Mary asks, and so do we. How can this be? We're just one congregation and not half as big as we used to be. How can this be? I'm just one person. I'm too old. I'm too young. I don't know enough about the Bible to share my faith with anyone. How can this be? The answer's the same. It's all about God's Spirit and God's way of bringing new life. Even when our hope is slipping away, God leads us toward new ways, especially when the old ways aren't working anymore. One last thing about those bones. God's Spirit doesn't blow them away. The new life builds on them. The sinew and flesh come and wrap themselves around the old bones so nothing is lost when life is reborn. Glory to God. Amen.